Turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. The second chapter of the book of Acts. It's interesting to see how different the apostles are in terms of their personalities and their priorities after Jesus leaves. We would think that it would be logical that there would be some kind of drop-off when his physical presence is gone and when they don't have the security of being around him all the time, but actually just the opposite happens. They become more confident and more bold and more effective in their ministry. And the most obvious example of that is Peter. Peter is a very interesting character study in the book of Acts because from chapter 2 to chapter 15, he's very prominent. After chapter 15, he disappears. And now the focus moves toward Paul and Paul's ministry and the missionary journeys and the effectiveness of his ministry. It's not that Peter isn't important, it's that there's a shift. So we're going to see a lot of Peter from chapter 2 to chapter 15. We're not really going to see Paul be very prominent until about chapter 8. So Peter becomes a very fascinating case study because he's the most dramatically different in terms of how he thinks and how he responds. And the Lord turns what is negative in his life and what hinders his effectiveness in loving people and ministering to people, and he turns it into an actual point of strength and value to the work of God. How many have had that happen in their own lives? You've seen things that were negative that God then shifts and turns positive when his spirit gets control of you. For Peter, his impulsiveness becomes uh, an initiative. Where, where he was rash before and brash, now he steps up and takes responsibility. His insecurity becomes courage. His anger becomes a godly passion for the Lord and his outspokenness, whereas once it got him into trouble and he spoke too quickly, and we know the examples of that in the Gospels, his outspokenness now he uses for an opportunity to tell people about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to say, you need to know him, you need to be saved, you need to have a change in your life. See, it's an inescapable truth that being saved and transformed by Christ and being filled and under the control of the Holy Spirit significantly alters who we are and how we live. When Christ gets a hold of us and when the Spirit indwells and fills us, we are not going to look the same as we did before. Now, that's a basic biblical truth, but it's something we need to constantly be reminded of because sin still influences us, right? Anybody been influenced by sin this week? I know I have. So the Spirit's got to get control of us. Now, that last week, we saw the Spirit come down in the first part of Acts chapter 2. And we studied this amazing scene of the coming of the Holy Spirit and how the crowd was immediately drawn to what was happening with the apostles. And there's an important spiritual principle there that, that we didn't really touch on last week that really impressed my heart this week. And that is that we're more fully committed to Christ and when the Spirit is moving in our lives and in our ministry, people will be drawn to the gospel. Church growth theories fly out the window. They're worth not even the paper they're written on. Because there is nothing more compelling for people. There is nothing that will draw them toward the gospel more than lives that are completely committed to Christ. 
there is no greater appeal and there is no greater substitute for it. Nothing we ever create, nothing we ever utilize to incite people to be interested in the gospel can ever come close to the powerful testimony of a radically transformed life. And if you're saved this morning, and if the Holy Spirit has indwelled you, and you're living for Christ, you have a radically transformed life. As we said a couple weeks ago, don't, don't wait to say, well, I'm not the person with the dramatic testimony. If you got saved, you have a dramatic testimony. If you're redeemed, your life is so drastically different than it used to be that, that you are able to talk about it. Every single life that's been rescued from sin and redeemed by the blood of, the Christ, of Christ is radically transformed. And the Spirit fills those who are emptied of their past life and emptied of self because self hinders holiness. And the Spirit will not dwell in a place that's dirty. He doesn't want to be in a place that's unclean and corrupt. Now, Peter and the apostles had kind of been like that. They had been saved and they had been spiritual and they were following Christ, but there was still too much of self in them. And they hadn't exactly distinguished themselves throughout the latter month of the time that Jesus was on earth. But now the ministry is assigned to them. And it's interesting to see, especially in Peter's life, how different they are. Now let's read. We've got a lot to cover and I put verse 41 in the bulletin, but we're not going to get there. We're only going to get to verse 28. George told me that would be true, and he was right. Let's actually start in verse 12, kind of pick up where we were last week. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, oh, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I'll grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to my words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live by hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, one of the things, as you go back to verses 12 and 13, that should strike us is what a pivotal time 
This is for the disciples. This is the key moment to determine what's going to happen. The crowd has come to find out what all the noise is, and they're hearing words spoken in their own language. And you can just imagine a crowd of this magnitude. Everybody's got an opinion on what's going on. And now after being secondary for three years, and I mean that in a nice way, for, for being secondary to Christ because all the attention was on him, now the focus is on them. Now everybody's looking at them, not at Christ. They're looking at them. And the climate here, really, we couldn't exactly describe as friendly. There's still a bitterness and an opposition that's present in Jerusalem at this point, that the apostles are still dealing with their own past failures, and there's insecurity about how they had acted. I want you to really feel the, the humanity of this text. A lot of times when we read Scripture, we just kind of read it and just say, well, this is what happened. But I want you to really read this passage with, with the raw emotion of what's going on. Imagine how these men are feeling. Every single one of them is insecure. Every single one of them had failed Jesus 50 days before in some way. From, from uh, John kind of not feeling like he defended Christ like he should, to Thomas denying Christ, to, to the nine that had run away when, when Jesus was betrayed, to, to Peter. Every one of them wrestling with that insecurity. It was interesting, Randy didn't know what I was going to say this morning. It's interesting, he highlighted that one verse of that song, take me as you find me, all my fears and failures, fill my life again. That's the story of Acts 2. These men at this point are insecure. And somebody at this point has to step up. Somebody has to stand up and say, this is what's going on. But they have every reason not to, especially Peter. Peter was the biggest failure of them all. Jesus had said, the devil's going to sift you, Peter. He wants you. He wants to mess with your life. Peter said, not me. I'll be with you to the cross. And when push came to shove, Peter gave in to temptation and allowed himself to worry about his own skin. And then when the time came where somebody said, hey, weren't you with him? He denied Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time, he used an expletive to say, I never knew anything about him. And then he was questioned by Christ about his love and his loyalty. It had to be embarrassing and mortifying in front of his colleagues, in front of his peers, to be called out by Jesus and say, do you really love me? Peter, do you really love me? Come on now, Peter, do you love me? No one had promised more and failed more. So you would think Peter at this point may be a little bit gun-shy, maybe, maybe not quite ready to be the one to step up, but God's forgiveness and restoration is complete, right? When God changes you, it's forever. Somebody say amen. God's forgiveness is not partial. His restoration isn't, isn't kind of cyclical. It's complete. Peter's a living example of that, which is why when we get to verse 14, it's so wonderful. Look at those words. But Peter, taking a stand, raised his voice and declared to them. Oh, that's great. 
rather than shying away and backing down and worrying about himself, he seizes this new opportunity to stand for Christ. And that's gutsy in light of the circumstances because there's a lot of opposition right now. There's the potential threat to their lives. But these 12 men don't care. They have to declare the word of the Lord. And when you read Peter's words and you see the strength behind it, you can't help but kind of think, this is not the same pre-resurrection Peter that I know. This is not the same guy. This is not the insecure man on the beach with Christ. See, prior to the resurrection, Peter either contradicted Christ or worked around him. When Christ transfigures, Peter gets the wrong idea. Hey, let's, let's do this and this. Let's build some tabernacles and, and we'll, we'll get some places for you guys to kind of have a powwow. That's the wrong thing. He's, he's always looking for, for something that will kind of draw to himself. At the supper, he makes the cross about himself. His heart seems right, but he's constantly kind of subtly stealing the glory away from the Lord and thinking about his role rather than saying, Lord, how are we going to exalt you? But here in his sermon, Acts 2, it's a beautiful sermon. He is completely Christ-centered. You know, the truest example of a life that is truly transformed and is filled by the Holy Spirit is that we, were, we are always looking for ways to exalt Christ and de-emphasize self. John 3.30 is one of my favorite verses. He must increase and I must, tell me, decrease. Everything about the Christian life should be that verse. That Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be exalted, that people would know about Christ and they wouldn't see me at all. Now that's contrary to how human nature is, but we're not controlled by human nature anymore. We're controlled by a divine nature. So we have to get our minds off ourselves, and we have to exalt Christ. Peter and the apostles are living proof of that. They were spiritual, but self-centered before, insecure and fearful and lacking in understanding and arguing who's best and, and failing in their flesh. But after the resurrection, after the Spirit falls on them, they're confident, unashamed, wise, bold, declaring the gospel, not worrying about themselves. In fact, in this message that Peter preaches, there's not one time where he talks about himself. What a contrast to who he was before. His attention changed. His purpose changed. And there's no greater proof of where our heart is than if we are constantly talking about Christ. We can do the right things. We can act in the right way. We can have good intentions. But ultimately, if we're living for ourselves, self will raise its ugly head and show itself. That's why so many people still struggle with sin. That's why so many people are still struggling with self because Christ isn't everything to them. Christ must be our all in all. He must be everything. Our life must be fully surrendered to the Spirit and we can see what a difference it makes, what it looks like in Peter because all throughout this passage 
And in the five sermons he preaches in the first five books of the of Acts, the first five chapters of the book of Acts, Peter always centers it on Christ and the resurrection. How many of your words this past week were about Christ and the resurrection? I can tell you for a fact from my own life, it was far less than it should have been. How many words were about exalting God? How many words were about magnifying God? How many words were about deflecting attention from us and people talking about us and thinking about us? And how many were directed at at glorifying God? I, I would guess for all of us, it's probably less than 10%. And that may be high. And yet we're told, he increases, I decrease. And the older we get in our faith, there should be nothing of self. That's what Peter's doing here. This is how you tell the integrity of, of anybody you hear that preaches or teaches the word of God. If the message is more about us and more about how we feel, and how about what we get from knowing Christ, then its focus is on self. If it's about Christ and his mercy and his sufficiency, then the focus is right. Look at what Peter does. He stands up, look at the passage, and he declares Christ. He's still baptized in the Spirit. He's still filled with the Spirit. But at this point, he's not speaking in tongues. He talks to the crowd in Aramaic which all Jews would be able to know and understand. And he says to them, give heed to my words. The Greek word there means listen and receive. In other words, hear it, accept it, and apply it. That's the only way that we ever are to read the word of God. You're never to read the word of God, the Acts of the Apostles, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. How many know that we're not supposed to read the Bible like that? When you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, we are supposed to hear it, we're supposed to receive it, we're supposed to be convicted by it or encouraged by it, and then we're supposed to apply it. There is never a time when we read the Word of God where it's supposed to be just dull facts. This is not a novel. This is not the newspaper that depresses you. This is the living Word of God that's designed to change how we think. So he says, crowd, give heed. Now, don't just, I'm not just speaking words to you, Jews. I I am saying the living word of God that you need to understand, receive, and now apply to your life. See, Paul warns in 2 Timothy that in the last days, which we'll see in a minute that we're already in, people would just choose to tell each other what they want to hear. Nothing challenging, nothing that calls us out. Nothing that says there's any kind of problem. We're kind of just like puppies. Just scratch behind my ears because it feels good. My leg kind of twitches a little bit. Now, oh, yeah, that's oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, now I can go home and be happy. Now I can go home and know that everything is just going to be wonderful and peachy. That's not how Christianity works. We're not supposed to just hear what makes us happy because the word of God divides and conquers. It cuts self open and says, here, it's exposed. So Christ can come in and pour the spiritual saline and cleanse us out and get rid of the infection. 
That's why David says, search and know every part of my heart. Find the little crevice that still has some pride in it and wash it out. Spiritual vitality always wanes when people stop listening to the word of God. And that gets even worse when those that are teaching the word of God stop listening to the word of God. Peter, look at it, gets right to the point. Audiences are usually slow to warm up. Usually, as public speakers, we try to kind of work them into it. He doesn't mess around with that. He doesn't have time. He wants to get right to the heart of the issue. Let me talk to you, men of Judea, men of Jerusalem. Let me talk to you about what's going on. Now, again, try to inhabit the text a little bit here. Close your eyes and get the scene. All these Jewish people from around the known world have pressed into the street to find out what's going on. And they're hearing their own language being spoken. Thousands and thousands of people crushing into these tiny little streets. And they see these 12 men whose reputation preceded them. And when Peter gets up and he says, shh, 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 shh. And all of a sudden it gets very quiet. And his first words are going to be very key. Will he validate the gospel of Christ or will he damage the opportunity to spread the gospel? Look at the text. He begins immediately in verse 15 by shooting down the speculation that their reactions are the result of alcohol. Because people were saying, oh, they're on sweet wine or it's also called new wine. Sweet wine was was the, the wine that was pressed that year. And it was known to have a very intoxicating uh, property to it. And one of the words that's used for this type of wine is that it takes possession of. In other words, when you drank new wine, it, it had the power to control the functions of your brain and your behavior with it. So if they had been drinking that, certainly it would explain their behavior. As an aside, isn't it interesting that that was the crowd's conclusion? Even the world knows that alcohol affects the mind and changes behavior from rational to irrational. But the thought here is ridiculous for two reasons. Peter says, first of all, we can't be drunk because it's 9 o'clock in the morning. But the real reason that we're not drunk is because we would never be filled and controlled by something that alters our mind in the wrong way when we can be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. The two are not compatible, and the two work in opposition against each other. One mitigates against the other. If you're full of the Spirit, you will not be full of the world. If you're full of the world, you will not be full of the Spirit. The two don't coexist. And the more we're filled with the Spirit of God, the less we will be filled with the things of the flesh. But Peter says your, your suggestion is crazy. But it also lost merit because the apostles weren't subjecting themselves to anything that would be misconstrued as unholy or worldly. And that's how it has to be. The world is going to look for any opportunity to discredit us or dismiss our beliefs as not correct. So we can't give them any opening to do that. We want to be able to clearly and credibly talk about the power of God in our lives. And that's what Peter does. Look at it. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. He immediately shifts the focus away from them and to the work of God. And he quotes this passage from the second chapter of the book of Joel. He says, this is an indication 
that the last days have started. This is an indication. This is what tells us it's true. God's Spirit, he says twice, is being poured forth. Whether we want to accept it or not this morning, we are living at the end of time. The clock is not at 4.30. The clock is not 6 o'clock. The clock is about to strike midnight. And if Peter could truthfully say that 2,000 years ago, just think how much closer we are now, especially in the light of the evidence around us. We've talked about Israel in the Middle East. We've talked about secularism and pluralism. We've talked about the rise of Islam. We now are seeing the complete weakening of America. We're seeing the weakening of democracy. If you saw this week, Vladimir Putin is running for president of Russia again. He can be in power for 12 years. And that and China rising to the world power in five years will dramatically change the landscape of the world. If we think America is still at the center and everybody bows down to us, we are absolutely crazy. And now with technology being so prevalent that the ability for the mark of the beast to be fulfilled and for prophecy to be fulfilled in Revelation is a slam dunk. People are so tied into their technology that they can't imagine living without it. And don't you think the Antichrist will exploit that? Be aware. Christ is close. Don't be surprised when he appears in the side. Of, I, I didn't think it would be now. He says, look to the sky. The return is imminent. You know, when my dad was here for spring special services back in the spring, he really spoke with wisdom and insight about the signs of the times. These are the last days. It began when Christ was crucified. That was the onset of a new age of God working now to draw the world toward himself he, till he returns. And Acts 2 is the first evidence that this is moving forward. Peter says, here's your evidence, crowd. Here's your evidence, church. Look back at it. It will be in the last days that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. That doesn't mean that the spirit is in every single person's life. It means that the spirit is going to make clear the evidence that Christ is Savior, that he's the only Savior, and he's going to fill believers for a unique work. But in that, we need to understand two very important things. The first is that this prophecy relates to the Jewish nation. And the second is that this prophecy has not yet been completely fulfilled. Now, we know from Scripture, stay with me now, this is a lot of information. We know from Scripture that if you're not born again, if you're not saved and regenerated by Christ, then you do not have the Holy Spirit. So this prophecy cannot apply to the whole world because the Spirit of God will not indwell those who don't love Christ. And we see an unmistakable progression in the book of Acts that replicates Christ's ministry, and it's all based on Acts 1.8. He says to the early church, you're going to go first to Israel. You're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And there, in those three places that are all within 50 miles of Jerusalem, you are going to talk about Jesus Christ. You're going to talk about what happened, what you saw, what you're witnesses to. And then once you've accomplished that, once you've gone to Israel, you will then go to the world. Now this also follows how Jesus worked. John 1.11 says, He went to his own, 
and his own did not receive him. For the first 12 months of Jesus' ministry, he ministers to Jews. He goes to Israel. He talks to the nation. He confronts the scribes and the Pharisees and those that were distorting the word of God. He goes to Israel in the first year. In the second year, he shifts. He goes more to Galilee. He starts to go to towns and villages. He starts to talk to Gentiles, the Samaritan woman. He starts to talk to to the Roman centurion. He talks to unclean people like lepers and demoniacs. And that fulfills John 1.12. John 1.11 says, He went to his own, and his own received him not. But then what is John 1.12? I hope you know this verse. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In other words, Jesus himself showed the model that the apostles would follow in Acts. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria first. Minister to Israel first. They have one more chance now before it all shifts and until the end of time, then I'll come back and deal with Israel. But right now, I'm going to deal with Israel. But soon, it's coming, you'll see the shift. Chapter 10 from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the world. And even the shift between apostles, Peter and John, so prominent up to chapter 10. After chapter 10, it slowly becomes Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Epaphras. Now, why does that matter? Even for the apostles, it took a long time to recognize that reality. Peter, in this passage, look at it, is not thinking about the gospel to the Gentiles. He really doesn't even want to associate with the Gentiles. In fact, God has to convince him in chapter 10 with the dream at Cornelius' house that, that he needs to go to the Gentiles. First, they have to go to Israel. And Israel will stubbornly, collectively, again, reject God. Even though right here in Acts chapter 2, the Lord is challenging Israel, turn back to me, and he gives them proof of his presence. But we have to recognize in these verses, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, that, that this prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. This is an apocalyptic prophecy that hasn't yet been fulfilled in history. The sun has not turned to darkness. The moon has not turned to blood. And some might say, well, the middle of it's been fulfilled. People can prophesy and say that they have dreams and visions and do miraculous works. But the problem with that is, how can we say part of it's true, but the other obviously isn't? The, the, the thing we need to understand here is not to miss the real point. The point is not to people prophesy, to people dream dreams. Listen, don't get caught up in that. The real point is, look at this, when he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young will see visions and your old man will dream dreams, your bond slaves, men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. What's he saying? He is saying that one day, Israel, you will confess the name of the Lord. You're not going to do it now. You put Christ to death. You have an opportunity for the next nine chapters to turn, and some of you will, but by and large, you as a nation will reject God, and God's going to scatter you. In, seven, in 40 years, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. There's not going to be one stone standing on the other. And for 107, excuse me, 1,900 years, you are going to be divided until finally God brings you back. But when he brings you back, it's going to be nothing but turmoil. That's what we're seeing right now. And I will deal with you, Israel, 
But this is your chance. Israel, listen now. Someday you will confess. In Revelation, we see there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that nobody can kill. And they will wander around the earth saying, blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be an angel that flies over the earth. And every day he will do nothing but proclaim the name of God. Israel, this is going to happen. Someday, your sons and daughters, oh, they're going to prophesy and they're going to talk about the name of the Lord and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. It hasn't happened yet. And verses 19 to 20 point to the end of time, the return of the Lord and the final judgment when everybody will be held accountable. And the culmination of all those things, he says at the end of the chapter, uh, at the end of the quote, will be the great and glorious day of the Lord when every single person who's ever lived and been created will know and acknowledge that there is only one true Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. So let's not be distracted in 2011. Let's be reminded of what's to come and let's call anyone who doesn't know Christ to turn to him because that's Peter's heart here. Despite all his failures and his inconsistencies, look at verse 21. We may just get to there. Peter gets, finally, he gets it. He finally understands what Christ had come to do, and now he wants people to call on the name of the Lord and be, tell me the next word, saved. Say it loud. Saved. Don't be scared to use that word. Don't be scared to gently and lovingly tell people you need to be saved. You see, the church has become very scared of using that word because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to make anybody feel bad about the eternal state, so we dance all around it. And you know what? We're not doing them any favors. In fact, we're helping to blind them to their eternal state. Every single person needs to be saved. I needed to be saved. I was a sinner. I was going to hell and I needed to be saved. It is not harsh or critical or judgmental to tell someone they need to be saved. It is a pure statement of fact and it applies to all people. If somebody was hanging by their fingertips from a bridge over a chasm, you would say, you need to be saved. And spiritually, every single person is hanging on that bridge. But we say, well, let's be nice and not, we don't want them to feel bad about themselves. You think the person that's hanging by the bridge with their fingers slipping is worried about whether they're going to feel bad about themselves? They just want to be rescued. That word saved is a great word. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a great word. Peter goes right to the bottom line. Look at verse 21. This was not in Joel's prophecy. But he says, this is what I learned from walking with Christ. There were so many things he learned. But there was one truth he was most convinced about, and as he has this opportunity, he's not going to miss the opportunity. He has to tell the crowd this. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There is nothing uncertain 
about salvation through faith in Christ. You don't ever have to question it. You don't have to wonder if it'll happen or imagine or hope it will be true. It is a sure thing because it's not based on you. It is based on Christ. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Not whoever does the right thing, says the right prayers, goes to church, does service projects. No, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter moves from the past prophecy to the present reality. And in three verses, I wish preachers, I wish I could do this. In three verses, my sermons would be a lot shorter. In three verses, verses 22 to 24, he completely encapsulates the gospel. Verse 22, he talks about the deity and authority of Christ. This proves by the miracles that he did, that you guys saw, that's his sovereignty, that's his deity, that's his authority. And this is part of the plan of God. Verse 23, that he would purposefully and willfully allow himself to be put on the cross for our redemption. And notice that he tells them that they're the ones who were accountable. In case somebody wants to skate out of it, he says, you are the ones to put him on the cross. And then in verse 24, he says, oh, but even what you meant for evil, God used for good. And Christ raised from the grave. What was the purpose? Look at the verse. They would put an end to the agony of spiritual death to those who believe in Christ and that the effect of the resurrection would be that spiritual death no longer has power over those who believe in Christ. Look at the simplicity of those three verses and then tell yourself, this is how easy it is to share the truth. Keep talking about Christ. Just keep magnifying Christ. Everything centers on the person and work of Christ. There's no man in it other than to say we're sinners and we're hopeless. Sharing the gospel is just saying, do you know Christ? I know Christ. Do you know what he's done? Do you know how he works? Do you know how, how, he, how he has provided for us, how he sacrificed for us? Look at then what comes out of that at the risk of talking too long. Look at the next section, what David says from Psalm 110, starting in verse 25. He says, David talked about the confidence of trusting in the Lord, four characteristics, his constant presence, which gives us personal and spiritual security, the strength of his help, which gives us joy and hope, the promise of his salvation for all eternity. We are not going to spend life in hell. We're not going to rot and decay. And then God's clear leading, which gives us gladness. Aren't you glad for those truths this morning? Can you imagine where we'd be without them? And it's interesting that he puts that right in the middle of the message. Because what he's saying is, this faith that I'm talking about, it's not clinical. And it's not just all based on experience and emotion. Verses 25, look at the text one more time, we'll pray. Verses 25 to 28 cannot take place without verses 22 to 24. So any teaching that says that true hope and security and peace comes from anything other than the salvation and sufficiency of Christ is false teaching. Because you cannot experience verses 25 to 28 without verses 22 to 24. And the opposite's true. Verses 25 to 28 must be the result of verses 22 to 24. If you say you believe in Christ and your life is not full of security and confidence and peace and strength, then you really have not fully given yourself to Christ. 
Because when we know Christ and when we're changed by Christ and when we're filled with his spirit, there is nothing but hope, peace, joy, confidence, and strength. That doesn't mean we don't struggle through trials. It does mean that the trial doesn't break us. Now let's stop there and and think just for a minute. The primary effect of giving our hearts to Christ is that we are completely and undeniably changed. The old is defeated and eradicated and the new takes a place. And not only does that dramatically alter our thinking and our actions, but it modifies the way we approach life. When we know Christ, nothing has purpose apart from Christ. Nothing drives us more than to be like Christ and to live by his word. And then the spirit enhances that exponentially. He keeps filling us and that gives us a sharp decrease in our desire to please ourselves and a sharp increase in our desire to please the Lord. And soon it thrills us to trust him. Not that it's a bother, not, oh, i got to trust God, that's going to be so hard because I don't know what's coming next. No, the mark of maturity of believer is it thrills me to trust God and I don't know what's coming next and isn't that great. And I may have to endure trials and I may have to have times where I can do nothing but just call on the Lord because I have no other option. And you know what? That's what God wants me to do because it's a thrill to live by faith. And then the Lord starts to shape us And we say, oh, I want to get rid of those weaknesses. Lord, turn them to strengths. Get rid of the junk and the self that's in me. And Lord, I'm amazed that you're going to accomplish your work through me. How can that be? Oh, your love and your mercy is so great. I just want to talk about you. That's Acts 2. That's what's experienced in Peter. And we want to go tell people, oh, do you know what God's done? Do you know what Christ can do in your life? Listen, that's the emphasis, especially this month. To tell people that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And when they say, what is the cause of the hope that's in you? We say, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Next week, we'll look at the fact that when Peter was done, 3,000 people got saved. And last night as I finished studying, it came into my heart. Imagine if one one one-hundredth of that got saved this month at Harbor Rock. Imagine if 30 people got saved through this ministry. How thrilled would we be to say, Lord, look at what you've done. So many opportunities. Sunday morning, Awana, Bible studies, youth events, missions trips, special services, an event that we're hoping to plan at the end of the month. Just in the next 30 days, imagine if one person a day got saved. How will that happen? By us just saying, oh, I hope that happens. That would be great. Boy, Paul, awesome. Good vision. All right, what time's the game? Or do we say, let me tell you what the Lord's done. Why don't you come to this event with me? Why don't you come? We've got, we got a special service at 23rd at night. You will be so blessed. But just come with me. Uh, you know what? Uh, my friend has a daughter, needs to come to Awana. They don't do anything on Wednesday. Why, we'll, we'll drive you. Yeah? Well, why don't you come to Awana? 
I got a friend in high school, in junior high, seventh grade. You need to come to church. Why don't you just come to Bible study with me? Or we're going to go do the core mission. These are simple things, guys. We're not saying let's go out in the streets of Racine and share the gospel and thump our Bible. I'm saying just invite them and pray for them and let the Lord do his work. But say, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, be saved. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we pray that we would be as bold as Peter. Lord, all of us are insecure. All of us at times feel intimidated. And yet we know the power of God in our lives and we have seen the transformation that's taken place in our own hearts and our own minds. Lord, I pray this morning that that would drive us with a new urgency to tell people, if you just call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Whoever believes in him will not die eternally. Will have everlasting life because God has said, I will make you a son of God. I will make you a daughter of God. Father, I want to put a bold request out to you this morning that this month, It's hard to imagine. But Lord, we ask you this month that you would use us to see 30 people come to Christ. That will require a lot of effort on our part, require a lot of hard work, it will require a lot of boldness for us to speak truth. It will require us moving past our comfort zone to invite somebody to come. And Lord, it is up to you then to do the work of convicting hearts. And we know you want to draw all people toward yourself because you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's not difficult for you. Lord, if 12 could lead 3,000 to Christ, then I've got to believe that 250 can lead 30 to Christ. So Lord, give us a passion for you. Keep us clean free from sin that we would not be distracted and Lord help us to seize the opportunities that we have to ask the question do you know Christ Lord we wait to see what you will do we ask you to work out every single detail every single logistic to give us the words when we're tongue tied and don't know what to say that you would help us in this work of calling people to Christ Because we know from personal experience how much that changes. We praise you and we honor you in Jesus' name.